Kevin Klinkenberg again. Welcome to the Messy City Podcast. I'm honored today to have my friend uh, Andrew Ganahl uh, join us here in the studio. Andrew is uh, somebody I've gotten to know the last few years and is very involved in uh, development in Kansas City. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Kevin. Glad to be here. This is a, this is a fun deal. So um, the, it was fun when I got to to talk with some of our other friends and people we talk to all the time and get to actually learn more about them, uh, things that I didn't know. And, and I, that's one of the the treats of having your own podcast is you get to ask questions that don't, we just don't always get time to ask when we're doing things together. And for uh, full disclosure, Andrew and I are actually uh, two of three partners on a small development project together, which I think, I hope we'll talk about at some point, um, an infill development in the Columbus Park neighborhood. Um, but before we get into all that, uh, I'd like for people to to get a sense of who you are. I think Andrew uh, has had a really unique uh, experience in terms of um, where he's not just where he's lived, but his professional uh, journey and how he came to doing development. And so I think, you know, having people understand all that and learn more about where you're from and, and all that would be a great place for us to start. So why don't you take it from there? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, it's funny to be about age 45 here and think about, do I actually have a path? Like, <laughs> path is getting longer every day. So it feels like it was just one decision after another, but it has gone in a couple of different directions. So I guess at this point, I would call myself an infill developer. Um, and that's not what I would have thought I was going to do when I was 15. <laughs> so brief background is, I would say I would come out of a more of a public policy type tradition, economics, finance. Uh, after graduating from university, I did work for an investment bank for a couple of years. This is back during the dot-com times. I was in San Francisco. Uh, and what I would say I took from that was really just love living in San Francisco during a very interesting time period. Mm -hmm. And also in that dot-com boom and then subsequent bust probably has a lot of parallels to what's happened the last couple of years in terms of the challenges. Um, but then after a number of years in the banking industry, decided that I actually did want to go back and go back to more public policy type roots. And I had two cousins who were living in Washington, D.C. at the time and being 25 or so, I was like, well, I'm just going to I'm going to move to Washington, D.C. So I did. Uh, it was a great time. I ended up working for the Department of Treasury, basically as a project manager, mm -hmm. uh, managing and developing large systems and large programs, because um, as you might know, I mean, the federal government does so many different kinds of things, uh, and it's there's a lot of operational aspects as well to what they do. So spent a number of years working for the Department of Treasury, uh, very interesting experiences we can get into during the financial crisis, uh, including helping stand up the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP. Mm -hmm. um, before getting to a point in about 2013 where I was like, you know what, I've been working for a number of years uh, in the federal government, large, large programs that, you know, we're hoping if they go through, we'll save something on the order of billions of dollars of taxpayer money to wanting to do something much more tangible mm -hmm. uh, in real world. So that kind of shifted me towards something like real estate. Uh, but again, in a very specific manner of focused on cities and urban infill 
and the kinds of experiences that I enjoyed so much being a person in his 20s uh, living in San Francisco, Washington, D.C., yeah. uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, walking everywhere, mm-hmm. eating out a lot, <laughs> drinking out, drinking a lot, uh, and the like. So you talked about like wanting to find something tangible. There's a lot of tangible things that you could do or you could have done after working for Treasury. So what what was it about real estate and uh, why did you go that direction? Uh, great question. I guess it is sort of happenstance where I had a good friend uh, that I met in graduate school that I went to when I was about 33 uh, who had a real estate background. And so it was more about trying to do something entrepreneurial, trying to do something with uh, my friend Scott. And when he pitched the idea of doing urban real estate, I was like, okay, you know, actually that's something that I might not know a lot of the nuts and bolts about, but I certainly have lived uh, and I've lived in apartments. I've mm-hmm. lived in walkable communities. Uh, if I could contribute to that, that would be great. And did you, um, was that something there where you just kind of jumped in with him to try a project? Did you read up on stuff? Did you take a course in real estate? Did, I mean, how did you start to educate yourself about that world? It was a, kind of a combination of all those, except with no classes involved. It was a real jump in and learn by doing mm-hmm. sort of approach. Uh, backing up a half step, I mean, I'd say my general personality is more of the generalist, right? Not necessarily good at any one particular thing, but good at looking at a, a broad spectrum of things and synthesizing that information into something that makes sense. Uh, and then also, uh, it was pretty easily apparent to me that development is basically a big project. So having that project management background uh, helped, I think, me grasp how to actually get something done. Mm-hmm. And, and then my business partner, you know, did have that real estate experience. So if, if anything, I would say, uh, he might say, well, here's the vision. And I was like, great, I'll help you figure out how to actually get there. So how did that actually like start? How do, what were the first conversations you had with him? And how did you get from well, this seems like kind of a cool thing to be involved in to all of a sudden you're in the midst of working on a project together. I think it was a slow moving conversation over a number of years. After graduate school, I went back to work for the Department of Treasury for a few more years, um, almost always in an area where we were trying to stand up something new. So a new program, hmm. uh, a new organization. And so really kind of got that hands-on experience of like, well, how do you start from scratch? Um, you know where maybe you're trying to head, but it's wide open of how you actually get there. Uh, and I think this was similar, right? So we had this kind of vision of, of a mixed-use apartment building mm-hmm. uh, in a urban infill neighborhood in the middle part of the country because mm-hmm. one of our theses was that, I mean, this kind of stuff had been happening for years on the coasts and in bigger cities, but it was really starting to penetrate just about every city out there. Uh, and this was 2013. Mm-hmm. So at the time, my business partner was living in Denver, and Denver was just absolutely red hot. Yeah. And the next town over to the east is Kansas City. Uh, I had never actually been to Kansas City at that <laughs> point in time, uh, but was intrigued by some of the things that I was reading, and uh, most especially the streetcar that they were putting in at the time. So uh, my business partner and I went and walked the future streetcar route and also just kind of having that experience of of washington dc and san francisco and boston 
it just didn't take a lot of imagination for us to say, hey, this is going to happen to some degree in Kansas City as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we walked the two mile streetcar starter line and just started writing down names and addresses of any parcel, parking lot, or underutilized lot that looked like it had potential for that. Hmm. Um, and and you really didn't have, uh, neither of you had a business interest here up until that point. It was really just like a scouting mission when you, when you came. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Right. And we had looked at, uh, uh, so at the time I was also moving from Washington DC back to Southern California where I grew up and mm-hmm. my parents still are. Uh, and during that cross country trip, we went to a number of different cities. So it's Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Iowa city, Omaha, Des Moines, and then Kansas City was actually the last stop oh. before we hit uh, before we hit Denver, um, and I think even at that point in time, Kansas City just kind of felt like it was at that tipping point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a few developers at the time who seemed to get it and were interested in the the downtown scene and what the potential there could be, but for the most part, the big developers in town were all focused on the suburbs. Right, they made a lot of money over a number of years and were perfectly happy to keep playing in mm-hmm. that world and kind of left the, the downtown river market to plaza area to people who were um, more, well, were smaller and, and more entrepreneurial. Yeah. It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. I think we've probably talked about this before, but you know, one of my fr- frustrations for many years being in Kansas city, especially through the two thousands, uh, and the late nineties, a little bit too, was it seemed like most of the people who were really interested in pursuing like ur- urban development projects in Kansas city, uh, were developers from outside Kansas city. Uh, and we, uh, in that time period, I used to talk and work with a lot of the local development community. And, uh, we spent a lot of time trying to, uh, talk with people about what was going on at the markets and. I suppose, try to evangelize a little bit and say, there's this, you know, there's this market of people who really want urban living and why aren't we building for it? And there seems like there's an opportunity. Uh, but yet a lot of our local uh, folks were just really reluctant to get into that game. And so in, instead, a lot of those uh, beyond just the small developers, especially the artists who were definitely risk takers uh, in crossroads in downtown and um, really created a lot of the atmosphere that's there today. Um, beyond those, the developers who were really taking a risk were from St. Louis and Chicago and, you know, other cities and, and Denver. And, and it was, uh, it was always a little strange and frustrating, but it's kind of a funny thing. Like you had that, you know, you had that experience from being in other cities mm-hmm. and kind of seeing what's going on and saying, and being able to identify, well, we think there's something cool that's going to happen here. I mean, that's kind of a, uh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I think every place thinks they're unique in a way that they're really not. I mean, <laughs> have you been in enough places? You're like, okay, you know, there's the coffee shop check. There's the really cool cocktail lounge check. All right. This is the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what the crossroads was in 2013, 2014. Um, and I appreciate that some of the people who had been doing uh, and still do amazing work in the crossroads probably felt, uh, had mixed feelings about people coming in and saying, oh, you're, you're clearly a cool part of town. Mm-hmm. We're going to come in and invest a bunch of money. And in doing so, you know, it does change mm-hmm. the community. Yeah. It's, it's also kind of funny on some of our little, uh, road trips that we'll take as a family, the like weekend or the overnight trip or whatever, we'll, 
we'll do things that are within, you know, a, an easy drive. And so, uh, in the last couple of years, I've, we've been down to, uh, Oklahoma, been to Tulsa and Oklahoma city, both uh, a couple of times. And, uh, it's easy to see how you can spot like the same vibe. You know, you can see those cities, they're growing in population. Um, and there's, there's money and interest moving there and you can, they're, they're probably a few years behind us in terms of their urban uh, revitalization, but you can, you can exactly spot it and identify this is what's coming. Yeah. I think the key word you said there was there are communities that are growing. Um, there's, I'm sure great work being done in cities that are struggling and mm-hmm. shrinking uh, and it, but it just compounds on itself right. how much more difficult that is. Yeah. Uh, if the pie is getting bigger, I think it's a little bit easier to be more, entrepreneurial experimental yeah. uh, because the chances of failure are, are lower or uh, if you don't, one thing doesn't work, another thing might work uh, where you could definitely see a negative cycle of a shrinking community uh, that's just not able to get that purchase of like, Hey, how do we make investments to pay off in the long run? Right. So one of the things I asked both our friends, Jason and Shamari, when they were in here was, kind of just taking a step back and thinking about that entrepreneurial side of you. And, you know, not everybody has that. It's, um, I don't want to say it's a rare commodity. I think enough people have it. You could say it's not rare, but it's, it, it's certainly, you know, not common. And so where do you think that came from, from, from you, the ability to see something and just want to pick it up and do something about it? It's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I think part of it is the, uh, I, I feel like, you uh, dis- are described this way, others are described this way, but they're, they are kind of generalists or synthesis, mm-hmm. right? They, they can kind of, they're widely read. Um, they are interested in lots of different aspects. Um, you know, sometimes I say, like, sometimes I feel like I am a mile wide and an inch deep. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how physics works or any of that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but I know enough about it to be just about dangerous. So I think that's one aspect of it. But Another aspect of it that at least I'm grateful for is feeling like I come from a, a stable situation where I can take risks and afford to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not everybody has that luxury. So right. whether that's just having worked long enough that I've got a decent but small 401k, mm-hmm. um, or at least the confidence that if this doesn't work out, I'm going to be able to find something to do and I'm not going to be out in the streets, Yeah, uh, I think does really help kind of spur that entrepreneur, uh, the, the ability to take a risk. Yeah. In I think, that aspects. I think that's, uh, I think that's a very fair point. It's an interesting point. Um, I think about my own journey, uh, you know, coming from a stable family and, um, parents who were very supportive and, uh, we never had like a lot of money, but we had, you know, enough money and right. comfortable middle-class living that it probably, in some respects, it probably felt easier to take a risk in that point because I felt like I knew how, I had a bit of a support network in case things went really, really bad. And I've never had to ask them yeah. for help, but I've always known that if I did, they would be there. Yeah. I had one brief period when I did <laughs> <laughs> I did have to ask for help. It was, uh, you know, the first year I started my own uh, architecture business. Um, the first year was rough. It was so yeah. bad. I think, I think, um, we had something like $12,000 in revenue the first year was, this was probably 2000. Uh, and it was, it was at the point where it was like at, towards the end of that year, I'm like charging groceries on the credit card, 
And, and I did ask my parents for just a little bit of money to help pay some bills at that point, which they helped with. Uh, and then very shortly after that, you know, our first real substantial client came in and then everything started to work. Yeah. Uh, but that first year is hard and it, it was pretty rough to, to, to go through all of that. Well, so. I, I mean, along those lines of my first year of starting this new business, we lived with my parents, <laughs> yeah. which was interesting in and of itself with, uh, we had two toddlers at the yeah. time. So kind of looking back and I go, wow, that was an, a crazy household. Yeah. Um, but just being able to go someplace where I didn't have to pay rent for nine months while we got right. something off the ground was crucial. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to that then, so you've kind of identified potential sites in Kansas City and you're thinking you're going to do this thing. What 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 happens next with you and your partner with starting to undertake a project? I think one thing that we did being confident, maybe even foolishly arrogant people is we kind of skipped the house flipping mm-hmm. stage, went right to let's do a uh, $8 million project. Mm-hmm. And part of it was that it just seemed so obvious and ripe at that time. This is 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing the two guys with the backgrounds we had and the networked connections we have from going to very good schools, um, that we could go raise money mm-hmm. and that we weren't afraid to go ask for that. Mm-hmm. So that's not something everybody has right. either. Like we had confidence in both our ability to execute a project, but also uh, convince investors and lenders that we were for real Mm -hmm. and could pull it off. But you had never raised money for a project up until that point. We had not. No, no. So, um, so that was interesting, right? A lot of people say, well, how do you do that? I'm like, well, you just kind of learn to start asking. (laughs) (laughs) So that first project, how much money did you have to raise? So that was uh, about $2 million, right? So it ended up being an $8 million project. Uh, You get a $6 million loan and you raised $2 million. And and that was like- That was 44 apartments, five-story yeah. building, about 800 square foot of commercial space on the ground floor. So after that sort of scouting expedition, you basically, uh, you found a site that you were interested in. You were able to tie it up uh, with, you know, through some sort of negotiation process with the landowner. And then you went to start to raise money. Is that kind of how it worked? Yeah. I mean, that was, that's actually a good point too. And one of the reasons why we started in Kansas city was that we could buy a almost quarter acre parcel for around $500,000, mm-hmm. which uh, I'm not saying that's a small amount of money, but <laughs> you know, that's not California prices. That's not right. DC prices um, that we felt like was in a realm of, we could go out there and raise enough money to buy that, that mm-hmm. lot for 500,000. We actually ended up raising a million dollars in sort of our first three month sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was enough to, to tie up the land, to buy the land, to do basic due diligence, to pay architects and engineers to actually design the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the course of the next year, we raised that further million dollars uh, as the project kind of came into shape. So how did those first conversations go in terms of trying to ask people for that first million dollars? Uh, hey, dad, you know, this project <laughs> I've been thinking about. Uh, so, I mean, i, I a joke, but I mean, yeah. I mean, so one of my first investors is definitely my my father, mm-hmm. uh, my aunt and uncle, and like three fraternity brothers from Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then same kind of story on my business partner's side, right? right. His mom came in for a, a small amount. Um, so it really was tapping those networks of people who would say, 
uh, yeah, I'm not really a real estate investor, but you know, I trust you. I think you know what you're doing. And yeah, here's a hundred thousand dollars. Well, and you know, it's it certainly, um, it's very common in the real estate world and any kind of investment or in entrepreneurial uh, activity that people raise money from friends and family. Yeah. That's kind of the first stop and often the first advice for people. And so not everybody has that, um, but uh, oftentimes people are reluctant to ask yeah, exactly. you know, friends and family just because they're afraid to, to go there. Uh, I, I mean, I guess what was that like from like a, just a human relationship standpoint with like, asking your dad or family members or others, did that feel awkward or? Yeah. I mean, for sure. I felt awkward too, especially given that this was the, my dad has no idea about real estate, right? He was a yeah. salesman his whole life. Um, you know, he had managed to, he was a boomer. So mm -hmm. save up a little bit of money just mm -hmm. from working at the same place for 30, 40 years. Um, so it was purely trust, right? There was, I'd say about half of our initial investors were people who just were, I know you, I like you. I'm going to back you. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, hopefully you're going to people where if worst case scenario, you lose some of their money, it's not the end of the world for them. Right. right? Um, and then the other half would be pretty quickly. We did meet people who cared about downtown Kansas city or the crossroads in particular, and were willing to put real money to say, Hey, I want to be part of the growth story mm -hmm. in this area. So, um, some of those people were connected to the Kansas City Symphony uh, or Symphony Hall, I should say, the Performing Arts Center, mm -hmm. and just were real true believers in the crossroads mm -hmm. and willing to invest in a cool project in that neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, so that was a different conversation. That was more, um, hey, this is a realistic plan. This is going to be good for the neighborhood. There'll be a nice little return associated with it. Um, but you know, it was a true passion story of like, I care about this neighborhood and I want to see, uh, new things built there. Yeah. So when, when I had, uh, Monty, uh, Anderson and Bernice yeah. Rado on here, we talked a, a little bit about raising money and, uh, I, I'm kind of curious, you know, uh, they talk a lot about that because they're always trying to teach people, you know, how to go out and raise money and, 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 and try to get over the, the hump on, um, being nervous about asking people for money and that sort of thing. I, I'm, one of the things I'm curious about is, do you think, um, would you say with, without mentioning any specific people, but would you say that your investors largely were investing based on trust or like how deeply were they looking at your financials and your, and, um, you know, your explanation of what the project is and, and, and all of that? I mean, it's like 90% trust, right? Yeah. I would say one thing, uh, I came at it from a, a background also of just being able to put together like a really solid presentation, mm -hmm. whether that's from investment banking and the hours you spend with PowerPoint and Excel. <laughs> you know, I put a lot of effort into my financial models and how they're presented and was always struck by like how few questions actually came down from the numbers themselves. Mm -hmm. My sense was more of uh, you need to be able to show a certain level of sophistication because people mm -hmm. are going to be writing a big check to you. Um, but that it's, it's really about credibility, right? Mm -hmm. And can you actually execute on what you're saying you're going to do? So, um, I mean, I've seen some bad PowerPoints out there, <laughs> um, where it's like, you know, but I'd say spend the extra time, like putting together a really good professional looking package just to kind of get over that. Is this a, a for real person, you know, a person who knows what they're doing? Yeah. Um, 
Did you did you have many? You people? Know, watch for typos, little yeah, stuff no like that. I mean, yeah, well, that's true because it does. It's an indication of you know, are you going to be good about the details? Yeah, correct. Exactly. Uh, did you have many people who said no? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I can't remember a lot of no's, but I mean, it came up. It, a no was pretty quick to sniff out ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, the other thing I would say though is that a lot of people that I thought were for, almost like for sure yeses were no's, and a lot of people that I thought were. Flat total flyers likely knows became yeses. Huh. So I wasn't as good at thinking of like who's a yes and who's a no as I might have thought of yeah. ahead of time. Uh, but almost nobody was ever like offended that you asked. And that's what you kind of worry about, right? Like mm-hmm. someone's going to be like upset at you that you're yeah. somehow asking them for money. Right. Uh, it was almost always the opposite. Like people were flattered, like, oh, you you want me to be part of this project? <laughs> um, so yeah, I think. There were there weren't a lot of no's that were strung out no's. It was more pretty quickly, mm-hmm. you know, whether this is a person who's interested or not. So what? So now you've got your money raised and you're you're ready to roll and get that first project built. And then from at that point uh, on, um, about how long did it take you to kind of get the building up and running and and uh, occupied? Well, I'd say like the whole project always takes like twice as long yeah. <laughs> as you think. Oh God, yeah. Uh, so, you know, what we might've thought would happen in six months would take a year. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way you, if you knew how long things would truly take, you might not even get started. It's the, the so optimism just, of just the, get started. Like, the optimism of the entrepreneur. Exactly. <laughs> and there's really no other way to do it. Right. I mean, yeah. other than just trying to be aware of, well, this is probably gonna be longer than I think, but you know, I'm gonna do my best anyways. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was uh, a few months to negotiate the original contract to get it signed up to raise that initial tranche of money about another year to go through the whole entitlement and design process. Hmm. Uh, I always think, well, you know, if you, if everything goes well, you could probably do that within six months, but it just never mm-hmm. goes that short. Uh, and then about another year and change to build it. And then we were at least up within six or seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole process I would say from, signing the contract to buy the land to opening the doors was about three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I recall, no, I'm sorry. It was a little bit over two years and then another year or so to uh, stabilize the property. Yeah. And were there any big surprises along the way once you really got cranking on the project? Well, I mean, there's always lots of crazy stuff that comes up during the way. Yeah. But uh, I think the other aspect of an entrepreneur is like you have a short memory right (laughs) it's like oh it was pretty smooth right oh no there was definitely times when we were thinking the neighbor was going to sue us for blah 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 and had to negotiate a settlement and so forth but um i think a couple things were going for us one was we did have a great local architect i mean a great local general contractor who really knew the ins and outs of kansas city uh, and at the time, the city council and the mayor were very pro-development, especially on the streetcar line. So there was a lot of aligned incentives up and down to make this project happen mm-hmm. pretty quickly. So during the course of this period, you know, it's taken two, two plus years to get something going. Is this like, is this paying your your living mm-hmm. right now? Or are you doing other things to make some money? Uh, or how's that going? Uh, at that time, I think we're just living off of savings Yeah. through that period of time. I think we did pay ourselves a small development fee mm-hmm. during that first period of time, but I'm probably talking $20,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest is, yeah, I mean, 
living off of equity in the yeah. house we sold in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. at the right time. You know, so that probably, mm-hmm. let's say we took, I took in a nest egg of around $100,000 to kind of live off of for, yeah. for two years. Right. While this kind of came to fruition. Right. Um, so, you know, to your point earlier about starting your business, there was a time when that was burning down pretty low. Uh, yeah. And get- there were probably days from like going, hey, you know, can you uh, yeah. help maybe, us out with a credit card payment here or there? Maybe I should pick up a part-time job or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and, and then, so how far into that then were you before you started looking at like your second project, your, your, your succeeding projects that you would take on? I mean, pretty much right away. Yeah. So just because you do need to have so many different irons in the fire, knowing that such a small few, you know, of every 15 things you look at, maybe one gets past a certain stage. Mm-hmm. So um, I believe we bought a building also in the Kansas City's Crossroads neighborhood in January of 2015. So about a year mm-hmm. plus after we got started. Um, so in an ideal world, you know, we're trying to stack up projects where it's like one year, almost one a year. Right. Um, so at this point in time, it's been about eight years and I think I've done six projects. Mm-hmm. So not quite one a year, but yeah, in that ballpark. And so you then eventually you, you completed both those projects in Crossroads uh, and then you ended up in Milwaukee. Uh, how, yeah. did, how did that happen? Uh, looking for, uh, well, when we started, my business partner, Scott, and I kind of said we wanted to be in multiple cities, right? It's more of a diversification strategy. Okay. And also take some of the same things that we brought to Kansas City to other markets as well. Uh, so Milwaukee just felt like a very similar city to Kansas City in terms of like what stage it was in terms of its downtown development or Mm -hmm. revitalization. Uh, And there was a very similar neighborhood to the crossroads called Walker's Point uh, or Fifth Ward. Mm -hmm. It was just south of downtown, had all the kind of cool bars, the cool restaurants, uh, a lot of like Hispanic restaurants, um, definitely LGBTQ friendly, Mm -hmm. that kind of neighborhood that we knew um, millennials in particular were just (laughs) dying Mm -hmm. to live in. and it was a very development-friendly city as well. Um, they had put a lot of money into, they were actually building a streetcar uh, too. So they were eager to see uh, developers coming in from other markets to make investments in their city. Okay. So then you've got, uh, you ended up like doing two projects in Milwaukee? So we did two projects yeah. there across the street from each other, about yeah. uh, 150 apartments in total, yeah. both of them with some ground floor retail. Yeah. So you're at this point there, you've got like multiple projects going. And at this point, do you really feel like, Hey, I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm a developer now. I'm figuring out this development thing. Yeah, I would, I'd say that. I mean, we're, I was on a plane a lot, you know, yeah. I was going back and forth to Milwaukee and Kansas city. And yeah, uh, it was certainly uh, very exciting. And, but it was, you get to a point where it's like, okay, I need to stop looking at new cities because it's getting enough to manage just having the ones we have uh, our fingers on now. Right. So then at some point we've talked a little bit about this, but I, you know, think it'd be interesting for others to hear about it. Then, then at some point you decide you're just going to pick up and and move and you're going to leave Southern California and come live in Kansas city full time. So, um, and, and again, you had never lived here. You didn't have a personal connection to Kansas city. Uh, Your wife did. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you yourself didn't. So how does, 
what were some of the factors that went into that? What were you, what were you thinking about in terms of moving halfway across the country for good? Well, one was what I just mentioned, which was I was on a plane a lot. And so I had just launched uh, another project in Kansas city in the Waldo neighborhood and was feeling like, okay, maybe I should just live two miles from the project instead of uh, 2000 miles. Uh, but the second one was we were, we were renting a house in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Um, same thing. We did not have a down payment saved up or whatever down payment we had saved up and had gone to pay the first couple of years of starting up that new business. Um, and housing prices in Orange County, California are through the roof. Mm-hmm. And so as hard as it was to, to not be 20 minutes from my parents, just Kansas City seemed like a great place to raise a family. Mm-hmm. So um in 2019, we decided we wanted to <laughs> actually buy a house. Um, my wife being a good Midwesterner, you know, that's her goal in yeah, life is right. to be a homeowner. I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't mind renting. Um, and, but also to, to a greater extent, like it really felt like Kansas City was a, the kind of city that could help make a difference on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, Orange County is a, a fantastic place to live in many respects, but it is huge. It is old school. It is not open to change. I mean, the people there are, they love their 1950s era, Mm -hmm. big highways, low density. Uh, And Kansas City felt like it had more of an up and coming vibe to it. And Mm -hmm. I was at the point where I felt like, you know, you could actually be uh, engaged in the political process and the development process in a city in a way that's more meaningful than in a place like California, where it's just, I mean, it's such big money. Yeah. So now that you've been here for four years uh, or so, uh, I mean, has it has it met those expectations? Do you feel like some of those assumptions were right when you uh, looked at Kansas City? Yeah, it it really was. I mean, and I mean, our neighborhood that we live in, I live in the Brookside neighborhood. It's it's incredible. I mean, you can walk everywhere. It has those old neighborhood shopping nodes um, that you just don't see outside of the older uh, development pattern right. kind of neighborhoods. Uh, it's, it's a city, you know, it's a full, it's a major league city, right? Major league sports, everything else. But yet it still feels pretty accessible mm-hmm. to somebody. If you want to volunteer, if you want to be on a, a commission at the city level, if you want to get to know your council members, if you want to get to know the mayor, uh, it, it feels accessible in a lot of ways that didn't feel that way where we were coming from. Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, had this discussion going back even to like my college days, it seemed like uh, when, when I was uh, in college in architecture school, you know, at that time, I would say a majority of my, my classmates were like, we want to go to Chicago or Seattle um, and, uh, you know, go to whatever the the bigger, more interesting city is, San Francisco. Um, and I stuck around uh, Kansas City and uh, had a lot of conversations with classmates in different ways. But one of the things we talked about that was interesting, like Chicago, you go to see like Chicago, which is a fantastic city. And, you know, as an architect, if you're working, there's tons of firms to work for. There's incredible work going on. It's a really lively, wonderful city, um, but hard to get involved because it's such a big city. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas a city like a city the size of Kansas City, these more mid-sized cities, you know, if you're, if you're really eager and want to get involved in whatever ways, you know, I was in my 20s and I was getting on boards and commissions and doing things, you know, in Kansas City that I probably never would have done or been able to do in a bigger city. 
Uh, so I always kind of felt like that was, it was like a weird selling point in a lot of ways, but I think for certainly for a lot of young people, it's kind of an interesting benefit. And just being uh, from the outside, I thought that was a, I, I would just go in and follow like young Kansas city development nerds on Twitter mm-hmm. and be like, they're, they're making a difference. Right? Like the, the mayor and city council are listening to these people that just felt like had a much more of a, a young kind of do something vibe to it. Yeah. Um, that I did not feel, I mean, the word that comes to mind for where I was living, it was very nice, but it was just stasis, Yeah. right? Everyone's goal in life was like, keep things exactly the same. Right. And that was not the vibe in Kansas city at all. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't, and it was open to your point to people of all ages who wanted to get involved, um, to help drive that change. Yeah. So uh, now you, you hit a point, uh, where you had successfully done a number of um, apartment projects, mixed use projects mm-hmm. uh, in Kansas City, Milwaukee. Uh, I know you're looking at some of the other cities too. And then um, you and I started talking about uh, a project that would be more like a for sale thing with townhomes. And so I'm just kind of curious, you know, a lot of developers like will pick a thing that they do and they'll just like stick to that. And that, you know, that's like, that's the widget that they produce, you know, over and over because, and they get really good at it and they refine all the details, but it's like anything else. They, they kind of like have a market and they stick to. So why did you want to start looking at doing something totally different from that? Well, in part because the, the market doesn't stay static, right? Mm-hmm. So the stuff that worked or the widget that was the right widget for 2013, 2014 is not necessarily the right one for 2022, 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gotten harder to develop the kinds of things that I did in the crossroads in 2013 and 2014. Uh, scale has just gotten almost more important in some respects. And certainly there's like downtown Kansas city is not undiscovered anymore. Right. Right. I mean, we had the, the blessing and the curse of after trailblazing a bit with a few others, uh, big guys just flooding in from the coast or you Mm -hmm. name it. So you, you do kind of have to adapt to some extent. Um, but the other aspect was it that, you know, I'm trying to follow my customer, right? So if my customer is a young professional millennial um, who's 28, well, by the time they're 35, they might be looking to buy someplace. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them have gotten that taste of city living and realize that, you know, they don't, their, their goal is not necessarily to jump out to the burbs, um, which is, which is great for so many people, but shouldn't be the only option. Mm-hmm. So you and I started talking about like, well, how do we bring a, you know, good for sale, new construction product to, to these neighborhoods that have plenty of apartments, no shortage of places to rent, but don't have a lot of that for sale, uh, aspect to it. Yeah. Um, so we were able to fortunately latch onto the site. Uh, you were able to tie up a site, uh, in the Columbus park neighborhood and, and uh, we have a project now that's kind of a mixture of for sale and for rent that's that's going forward on that one. Uh, how how do you think about how different this effort has been than than the projects you've done before? Yeah, it it's in some ways it's similar. In some ways, it's like trying to learn so many new things, and you go, well, "Why didn't I just stick to the widget <laughs> that I knew? The widget that I knew how to do." I mean, it's a bigger site than we've I'd used before. I mean, it's still only like two thirds of an acre. Mm-hmm. Um, but before the the overall design plan was like pretty straightforward, right? You got half an acre or you got a quarter acre and you're going to put a building that's zero lot line on all four sides because you're right on a main street. 
Um, and this was more of, uh, you know, how do we have kind of different sizes and styles of dwelling unit on this oddly shaped triangle yeah. in a very eclectic neighborhood. Right. Um, so I think we spent more time probably trying to just figure out how does everything fit together in a way than just like a square building with a double loaded mm-hmm. corridor mm-hmm. <laughs> and an elevator on one end and a stair on the other end. Right. Um, but you know, that's also led to, I think it's probably taken us longer to do this project, even though that's smaller in a lot of respects than some of the other stuff I've worked on. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some things I did not anticipate. Uh, yeah. Site work is a, is a big one that gets more complicated as the sites get bigger and yeah. more complex. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly taken longer, you know, than I expected, but like you said before, that's kind of the nature of things. You always go into these with a really optimistic idea of where it's going to go. Uh, we'll see where that one goes. We're, we're hopeful. Uh, and, uh, we're hopeful to break ground on that, uh, any day now. So that'll be, it'll be an interesting experiment of its own. I'm curious now. So now, I mean, you've almost, it's basically been a decade since you started, Yeah, you know, on, on this whole new venture than what you had done before. Um, which is kind of a big career change, you know, at, in your mid thirties, uh, even though there's, even though you brought to it a lot of understanding about economics and about finance and other things, it's still, a, it's a big shift. What I'm curious about like the lessons learned or things that you might share with other people, uh, who uh, are thinking about this, maybe, uh, maybe they're like you that they're not jumping into it when they're 22 years old and they're doing a house hack or doing a house flip or something like that, but they're a little bit older, a little more well-established. What are, what are some of the things that, that you've thought about that? Like, if you were going to give advice to 35 year old Andrew, what would, what would you tell him? I would say continue to cultivate your network. I mean, none of these projects that I've worked on were one person or two people's babies, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it really took lots of different people working on it and their little components of this stuff because you you can't do it all yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You you have architects, engineers, lenders, investors, accountants, you name it. So uh, learn where you need the help, professional help, and have those people on your, in your Rolodex, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um because a development project is much bigger than one or two people. Yeah. Um, I, I've also always had partners. I mean, like specifically had partners because I think sometimes two heads are better than one. In a lot of respects, you're going to miss something or you're going to pick up on something that your partner mm-hmm. didn't see. And it's just helpful to have somebody else to kind of share the, share the burden. I mean, mm-hmm. to some extent, the there's times when you do almost have like sleepless nights, like, Oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? Yeah. And I found having somebody else in there with you to kind of help lighten that load has been pretty helpful. Yeah. Um, Cause you are taking on a lot of risks. So it does, I think um, help to kind of compartmentalize things right. at times where you're just like, uh, well, for me, it's like, okay, if this all implodes tomorrow, I'll go try and get a job back in, working for the government right, <laughs> or something like that, which, I mean, there's almost always a plan B that you can figure out yeah, um, to kind of help get going. Mm-hmm. So I would say the, the highs are really high in this kind of thing. Like you really do feel a sense of tremendous accomplishment 
when you're doing a ribbon cutting or yeah. uh, opening up the doors. And uh, I mean, one of the things I love is just meeting the tenants who like live in your building. Yeah. They're great people. And you're like, how cool is this? Right. Uh-huh. Um, but then the lows are tough. I mean, there's times when you're really feeling like you're up a Creek and Oh my gosh, how, how do you, how do you get yourself out yeah. of this mess? Or you're dealing with like a property management issue on a Saturday or Sunday, you know? Yeah, that's that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I mean, property managers like it's it's a it's a very. Uh, I mean, no one loves their property manager because if they're doing their job well, it's invisible, mm-hmm. and when they're not doing their job well, it's very visible. Yeah. So. And you know, you haven't done this yet through like a major economic downturn, but you did do it during the COVID. Uh, shutdowns and everything. And so I know you had a project at that point that you had on the books and ready to roll in the Waldo area. Right. I think it'd be interesting to talk about like your thought process of, you know, what happened. Cause that, that's not like a typical recession that a lot of people might deal with, but it was definitely a shock and you had to make a lot of hard decisions. So how, how did that, what was your thinking like when, when all that was going on? I think one benefit we had was that this thing was so, we were so pregnant with it mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know, it's almost like that baby was coming out no matter yeah. what you wanted to do. We were, <laughs> I think we were just about to sign the contract with our general contractor after a pretty extensive value engineering process to get down to our budget when March 2020 happened. And so there was that moment of like, well, you know, we've raised the equity, we've, we've got the loan commitment. Mm-hmm do we, do we do this thing or is the world going to change so fundamentally that what we're planning on building doesn't fit it anymore? And I don't think it took us long to decide like, no, people still need a place to live. A community like Waldo is going to thrive in many different kinds of conditions. Uh, It's not, it's not downtown. It's still urban, but it's got, you know, really solid neighborhood, a solid base of single family homes, a solid base of small commercial um, that we thought, you know, the best thing we should do is just move on. I mean, mm-hmm. move forward, I should say. Yeah. Um, because everyone's ready to go and who knows what's going to happen. And at some point you, you do, I mean, I'm a pretty big planner, but I realize you can't plan for everything. Mm-hmm. And there is an aspect of we'll figure it out as we, as we go. Mm-hmm. You just try and you just try and minimize the number of things that you say that about but sometimes you just got to say like are we going to do this thing or not yeah and um and that was one of them yeah i mean it 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 wasn't typical in many ways but there was an awful lot of unknown in that time period about like you know what might happen with labor issues supply chains and those sorts of things and so uh, there was a just a lot of uncertainty yeah it made for a more complicated contract negotiation (laughs) i remember like you know really learning what force majeure meant (laughs) Uh, because we didn't know what the world was going to look like. Yeah. And, and, and there was a brief period where we were like, hey, you know, do we hold off and our price is going to come down because that's what happened in 08. Right. And we decided, no, that, that's that's too like timing the market. And we just pushed on and thank goodness because, yeah, prices only went higher, not right. lower. Right. And in the end, that project um, has performed as well as you would hope, to, it, at least Yeah, it has. I mean, so we opened in August of 2021, right about when – really things were like apartments were uh rents were flooding back in or i should say apartment tenants were flooding back into these markets and mm-hmm. eager to rent so yeah in retrospect our timing was really good yeah so 
I mean, after doing this for a decade, I mean, you're a guy, you could do a lot of different things. Uh, you know, you, you kind of glossed over this, but you went to a couple, you know, elite schools. Uh, <laughs> you have, you know, you're obviously very intelligent guy, you know, capable of a lot of different things. Would you, would you say that development, that this has been hard? Uh, has it, or has it been harder than you had thought? Or has it been easy? Um, I don't know. I mean, compared to other things that you've done. Yes. <laughs> All of the above. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would definitely not say it's easy. Yeah. Right. But, um, it's also not, it's not rocket science. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is, I think the ability to be curious about a lot of different things, being want to get your hands and thoughts into different things while also not trying to overly dictate things. Like mm -hmm. I don't want to tell the architect exactly how to design it because mm -hmm. that's their, their realm. Yeah, I do. Um, I do, but that's just because I'm an, <laughs> an architect. architect. Yeah. So, uh, what I like about it though, is that, I mean, every project to, to a great extent is kind of unique. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I am a, sometimes it drives me nuts at how unstandardized things or non-standardized things are in the whole architecture world. Yeah. Like I, I must ask the question a hundred times, like, Hey guys, haven't you like figured this out already? Like, why, why does every project seem to reinvent basic design principles? There's, there's no value in having things standardized. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that keeps it interesting for me as well, right? Each site is unique. It's, it's own unique shape. It has its own unique challenges, has its own unique um, demographic of who you're trying to sell or lease mm -hmm. to. So it, so it does let me be more creative, I think in a way than, um, helping design or stand up a, a new billion dollar software program for mm -hmm. the department of treasury, yeah. um, where, you know, it's, it's really important work, great sense of mission. Um, but you do feel like you're just one little tiny person on a, uh, a thing much bigger than you. So yeah. the, the connection to the, to the outcome is so much less tenuous. Uh, so much more tenuous. So has it satisfied, you know, that kind of urge you have to do something more tangible and, and has that really been something that development has done for you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, uh, I, I, I just know from knowing you that you're interested in lots and lots of different things and, uh, and, uh, the ability to, to find something then that, uh, is actually something that you create. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about meeting those tenant tenants, but you know, that ribbon cutting and that, that moment of creation is something that's unique to, to doing this process. I mean, I feel like you have to feel good about whatever you do. And I feel good about like infill development. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's, I mean, real estate development and real estate in general is super broad. Mm -hmm. Um, so whether I can't say how much by choice, but I've tried to do the part of real estate development that I think has the most or, or one of the most societal, societally beneficial aspects to it. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a huge believer in, um, you know, just the, the strong towns mantra of infill as opposed to sprawl. Um, so, you know, there might be, maybe I could have done greenfield development mm -hmm. somewhere and chosen not to, um, but just that's also because it wouldn't excite me in the same yeah. way, right? And I think yeah. part of what you do as a developer and as an entrepreneur is do stuff that excites you. Yeah. Do you ever like look ahead five years, 10 years and imagine kind of think about um, what, where you might be headed in terms of what kind of projects you might 
might be doing well, well down the road? A little bit, but um, I mean, everything is kind of uh, conditional, right? I mean, yeah. what is, what are market conditions? Um, how, I mean, there's real estate's heavily impacted by societal wide trends, right? And there was that real return to the cities that was happening for a number of years. And now we're experiencing other big phenomenon. I mean, right. the work from home, what's going to happen with all these downtown office spaces, all that kind of stuff. So as much as I do try and look ahead and like, what mm-hmm. do I want to be working on? Um, I'm trying to be humble enough to realize I'm going to have to kind of tack yeah. with where things go. So yeah. I mean, I would like to continue to do residential. I mean, I think apartments are in particular and uh, houses as well. Uh, people are always going to need somewhere to live. Mm-hmm. And it is in a lot of ways, I think less, um, less cookie cutter, um, more, I mean, there's just so many different parts of it. Like you can really specialize in little areas and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a big production builder, uh, that kind of stuff. It's like these, these are going to be individual unique projects mm-hmm. that I'm working on. So I also know you're really well traveled and, uh, just, not just in the United States, but also around the world to, you know, are there projects that you see in other cities that you think, God, I'd really love to do something like that. Like that would be really cool to do something like X, Y, or Z. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, nothing like that comes to mind. More what comes to mind would be something like, I think it's amazing what Paris has done with regard to uh, a city making a commitment to mm-hmm. non-car mm-hmm. forms of transportation. Yeah. So if I could step back, I would say one of the things I would like to do in the next couple of years is get more involved in public policy. Right. So mm-hmm. what are the things that I can do or help do at the city and regional and heck national level mm-hmm. to help make the kind of development I do better? Mm-hmm. And um, and one of those ways, I think, is engaging with the city of Kansas City to help advocate for for good policies mm-hmm. that uh, looked at what other cities have done in terms of figuring out that. Yeah, I mean, cars are going to be here and they'll mm-hmm. be here forever and people will enjoy driving, but that's not, doesn't have to be the only option. Yeah. Um, so just seeing the the pretty short period of time in which the snowball effect of you start to put bike lanes and s- scooter lanes and just open up opportunities for other e-bikes. I mean, yeah. you got me into e-biking and I'm <laughs> full on believer now. Another victim. <laughs> that's right. Um but yeah, I mean, once you start riding your bike to work, it, your, your eyes just open up to all these other possibilities versus if you're behind a, a windshield. Right. Um, and then I've got kids who are coming up on their teenage years and I'm looking at them and I'm going, I want them to have other options besides just mm-hmm. driving. And God, have you seen how terrible drivers are lately? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking we that need, this morning. We but... need more <laughs> options for that kind of stuff. So yeah. I, I think uh, there's a lot of cities out there that have made pretty... Uh, well, what, one of the things I, 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 I hate are the, the genre of photos of empty bike lanes. Yeah. And especially in Kansas City, it's usually accompanied with empty car lanes as right. well. <laughs> so nobody's, in the, nobody's using the bike lane. Well, yeah. no, one's, no one's using the road either. Right. Um, but other cities, you know, they, once they start building that infrastructure, the demand really does come, right? Yeah. People start, like I'm a complete hobbyist. I mean, a uh, 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 I'm not a hardcore cyclist, right? I, I'll only ride my bike where it's safe and easy mm-hmm. 
and not in danger of getting killed. Yeah. So I think yeah. there's a lot more people like like that out there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more of the casual cyclist than the hardcore. You know, I'm going to get my road bike out and strap on spandex and, you know, hit the road. Right. Uh, so, and, you know, we're kind of, it, it kind of feels like we're in that regard, like in the awkward adolescent phase, you know. And there will be mistakes, change. right? Yeah. And it's not everyone is going to work right. great the first time, but I do feel like we're ripe for experimentation on yeah. different aspects. And yeah. Yeah. And we just have, we have so much, you know, excess pavement space. You right. know, we, I, I know it's a thing that, uh, like the new bike lanes, there's been controversy associated with those. And, and I, I'm sure things could have been handled differently and they could be certainly be marketed and pitched differently, mm -hmm. but, um, it's, uh, you know, we just, we have so much excess pavement space relative to the amount of cars that are on the road. And that's just evidenced by mm -hmm. how fast people drive. You know, it's so right. easy to drive like 50 miles an hour down Broadway, you know, because there's no traffic all the time. So it's, it's, it's a different deal. So like along those lines, I'm kind of curious, you know, you've lived, you've lived in San Francisco, you've lived in Washington, DC, you've lived in Boston. Mm -hmm. Now you're in Kansas city, a very different kind of city in the middle of the country. I'm just interested to sort of compare, you know, some of the uh, lifestyle differences or things that, that you've seen by living here now for a few years versus, you know, some of the larger coastal markets. Well, it's definitely harder to get around without mm -hmm. a car for sure. Um, as someone who enjoys eating out and drinking mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. uh, it's a little shocking sometimes that it's like, you know, really the only option is to drive a car there. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, that's a great benefit of a place like San Francisco or Washington DC. It's like, just, you, you meet up with friends and no one's driving home. Mm -hmm. Everyone's taking a taxi or taking public transportation, right. taking homes. And the, the cities are just much more set up that way. Um, but I also think like Kansas city has all the big cultural things that you see or would expect. And I mean, the, the symphony hall is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, art museum, incredible world war one museum. It's like, you're, you're not hurting for cultural and sporting opportunities, even in a city that's, uh, in a Metro that's, you know, a third or, or you know, even 10% the size of these other ones. Yeah. So everything is just scaled on a different, on a different way. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. What about like living in the middle of the country? What's that like versus, you know, cause you've always either lived on the West coast or the East coast. I guess I, you know, I benefit from family on both coasts. So it's yeah. like, well, you just get on a plane and then you, you fly to California, <laughs> fly to Florida. Um, well, that's where COVID was pretty helpful in a way that yeah. it uh, sort of cut down on those opportunities. And so we decided we we're going to explore Missouri and Northwest Arkansas and yeah. some of the surrounding uh, Omaha and, and really, you know, gave us the, the push to, to look around there. But yeah. I mean, Crystal Bridges is pretty amazing down there, what they're doing in Bentonville and yeah. uh, with all that cycling yeah, infrastructure. No so um I love the seasons, you know, I'm actually a fan. I don't think Kansas City weather is all that, all that bad. I don't, um, I don't either, to be honest. You know, it's like we love to complain about it in the Midwest, but really the weather here is pretty nice. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's not Milwaukee. It's not no. Minneapolis. No. Kansas City is, is pretty good. Yeah. Win um, winter is shorter than people realize. Yeah. So. And there's just so, I mean, I think we are going to be, continue to be in an age of, of, uh, 
transitory migration. Mm -hmm. I mean, I joke with you and others that like, I'm not the only Californian coming to Kansas City. Hey, so we, we're, we're coming, we, get ready. We have met a bunch of Californians that have landed here. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing. Yeah, you're bringing your, your tribe from uh, the West Coast. And there's a fair amount of people who, you know, did are from the area who went to coastal cities or yeah. Chicago and have a family and are, are moving back. And so there's some aspect of stage of life too, where it's like, I think this is a great city for the stage of life that I'm in yeah. and my kids are in at the moment. Um, I mean, the cost of living differential is, is very significant. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a huge weight off your shoulders when you feel like you're not beholden to an insane mortgage just to get into uh, a basic house right somewhere right yeah i think it, it's funny how things kind of feed on themselves and you know the the changes in the uh, urban dynamic in kansas city uh, i think have made uh, a lot of that return back to home go away and come back home easier yeah. you know when when i was younger uh, and uh, it was, it's certainly true that many of my uh, high school and college classmates left uh, either left the area or whatever and in that time period, you know, the urban core was, you know, pretty depressing for the most part, you know, to be honest, there, mm -hmm. there, there were things here and there, but there just wasn't a lot of activity. And now uh, you can see yourself in a situation where you go away in your 20s and maybe you hit 30 years old and you're like, well, actually, there's a lot going on in this town. And that it seems to make that return home easier than, than it probably used to be, you know, 20 years ago for a lot of people. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, because there's also the... Uh, the things that you get used to maybe in a coastal city, like a, a, a decent airport, right. You know, Kansas city now, <laughs> now checks that box. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, world-class sports teams. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Check yeah. that box. Yeah. Um, there's, I'm sure there's a bit of a flattening going on where the, maybe the things that made Kansas city unique in the past are, are less unique. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the sort of middle-class upper middle-class young professional, it, it's, a lot of the cities you you, you find the same the mm -hmm. same stuff yeah just a little bit different names right yeah yeah i have a i have a architect friend who often talks about you can just see the millennial starter kit everywhere yeah, exactly so, <laughs> and it's got the same recipe you know in every location but it's true and we joke about it because we like those things and they they obviously have broad appeal so that's why you see them everywhere and every revitalizing community they've got the the yoga studios and they've got the you know, the, the fancy coffee shops and the cool hipster bars and everything, because frankly, they're popular and they're, they're fun. So. And I think that's what will make things sticky, right? So somebody yeah. will come to, or think about coming to Kansas city from a high cost coastal metro area. Right. And, uh, well, I mean, I'll have friends visit me here and it's like, look, you have all the same cool stuff at a fraction yeah. of the price. Yeah. Yeah. We um, just don't want too many of them coming at once. So it's a fair, <laughs> it's a, it's a fair concern. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, just like that, I realize it's already been an hour. Um, that was fast. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll pause it here. Uh, I will definitely do this again. I think, uh, as the show goes on, we'll get some of our, uh, friends and colleagues back together all in a room and we'll do multiple of us together and talk in a little more detail about things that we're kicking around here in Kansas city, uh, dive deeper into some of the the issues that we're struggling with and, and some of the other broader opportunities. I think that would be a really fun conversation. Uh, but I think this is great to give people a background on, yeah. you know, who you are and the different things you're doing. I'd love to, I'd love to try to demystify real estate and development um, 
because I wish more people would get into it. And I think it's a fascinating, fun way to uh, just be creative and solve problems, obviously with a ton of risk involved too, but it's, uh, I think it's very rewarding. This is important because I don't think I realize how like hated developers were until I got into the business. <laughs> so we need to like push back on, yeah. on, on that uh, stereotype yeah. or that conception. I know. I because, know. Uh, you know, people still need places to live and it's yep. an insanely uh, creative field. People work really hard. Um, so I completely with you. People, more people need to realize that they could do this for a living. Yeah. And it's, and it's just a great way to, you know, if you have issues or problems with your community and things, your neighborhood you want to solve, this is a way to do it. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I love the fact that you talk about it. It's not rocket science, you know, it's hard and it takes a lot of work and time and everything else, but you know, most anybody can figure it out if they're determined uh, to do it. Uh, so I do want to conclude. Uh, I ask all my guests, this is the messy city podcast. So uh, I like you to think about a place could be a, a city town a neighborhood that might meet that kind of criteria that uh, is a little more organic, diverse in nature, that is someplace that you love, or uh, if I mention that term, someplace that really comes to mind uh, that, that you've enjoyed or in the past. And it could, could just be a neighborhood, could be a whole city. What, what comes to mind? What I, I mean, I think the neighborhood that comes to mind when I think about that messy city really is, I'll just go back to the crossroads mm -hmm. in Kansas City. And that was one of the things that attracted us to that neighborhood. It obviously had the strong arts component to it. It was, I mean, nickname was the Crossroads Arts District. Mm -hmm. uh, it had the, the food and beverage scene, but it, it really was a bunch of like small time, very passionate operators bringing what they love to an area in, the, yeah. in a very non-planned yeah. way. I mean, the stories you hear about, you know, being able to like just roll a bowling ball down the street <laughs> 20 years ago and not worry about hitting a thing mm -hmm. uh, were true, but it made it incredibly organic, incredibly bottom up. Um, so I'm also, you know, have mixed feelings about, doing what I did, which is take mm -hmm. this really eclectic neighborhood. And I wanted to bring more people to be able to live there, but it also mm -hmm. changes it at the same time. Yeah. So people, uh, you know, if I'm an artist who's been priced out of the neighborhood, I'm, I think you have a right to be a little disappointed, Yeah. but neighborhoods change and, uh, and it's almost for the better that it's not too overly planned and changed and allowed to kind of go its own path. And really, you know, the next generation of artists needs to find that, that next crossroads yeah. and they have, I mean, they will and they always will and go from there. Yeah. I, it's a great neighbor. It's, it's been as, as somebody who been around here a long time, it's been amazing to me to see the evolution of that neighborhood yeah. and, and it continues to evolve and, you know, it's moving further East and it's, you know, the, what used to be a chasm between crossroads and 18th and vine is filling very These quickly. Crossroads blows yeah. my mind how yeah. quickly. Yeah. But if you bring someone from out of town, like that's where I go. Yeah, it's like, absolutely. All right, start at Casual Animal and work your way down the Torn Label and <laughs> enjoy great food and great beer. And Sounds like a plan for tonight, perhaps. Yeah. So. All right. Well, Andrew, thanks very much. Appreciate doing this. We'll do it again. That yeah, was great. Thanks, Greg.